listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Portfolio Wealth Manager, International Real Estate Investor, and Global Citizen, Tiho Brakan. Join us as Tiho helps you grow your wealth, reduce your risk, and increase your freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Tiho Burkhan. Thank you so much for joining us today for Episode 7. In this episode, we are going to deviate from our normal structure because Tio has a very important update for our listeners and his followers. Tio is going to provide observations and analysis on the U.S. equity market and why this is a time to be very cautious. Okay, Tio, so please give us an overview of what you would like to cover in this episode. Uh, hello to you, Jordan. Hello to all the listeners and readers if you are uh, following the transcript. Uh, basically, it's an important time to be cautious, in my opinion. Uh, the bull market has been very strong, and um, there is overpriced assets left, right, and center, and sentiment is buzzing with optimism. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you should go out and short things. It doesn't mean that you should go out and become ultra-bearish. But uh, there could be a more meaningful correction that will be playing in the cards over the coming uh, weeks and months ahead, potentially, as the Fed continues to unwind its balance sheet and hike interest rates. The four things I would like to uh, discuss today, Jordan, is we should look at some valuations, which is very important, so we know where we are in a cycle. We should look at what's happening in news and media and track uh, the current sentiment and mood of the investors. And finally, we should look at the market price and what's been happening uh, in all of the assets and sectors uh, across the board and what they're telling us. Okay, Tio, so let's start with valuations. Now, coming into this year, Tiho, you noted that valuations were fairly high, yet the momentum of the market was still strong, and that in included foreign and emerging markets. And because of the cheaper valuations, you have tilted portfolios to foreign and especially emerging markets, which have strongly outperformed this year. I mean, that was a place to be in stocks, not in the S&P 500. But with where we are right now, uh, talk about valuations and, and why you're more concerned right now than I guess you were at the beginning of the year. Sure thing, Jordan. Well, you correctly stated that, yes, I've uh, tilted a lot of my clients' portfolios towards foreign stocks, in particular emerging markets and other spaces like emerging market REITs and so forth, which have been depressed and moving sideways for quite a long time while the S&P has been out outperforming. Uh, and the story reversed this year, so we got that correct and we profited handsomely from that. Uh, however, the picture is now getting a little bit more scary for all assets. Basically, the old uh, country world index is up every single month this year from January till November. And basically, that's never happened since the inception of the index. So the momentum is running really hot. And uh, S&P 500 hasn't had a, even a 5% drawdown in 361 trading days as of making this podcast. That's pretty much getting close to the tie of record momentum stretch without any kind of a reset in sentiment and any kind of a reset in breath and to make the index at least short-term oversold and also 
no reset in valuations, which is what we're going to cover right here. Since the beginning of the year, we've seen the price-to-sales ratio in the S&P 500 move from about 2 towards about 2.2 now. So, we're, we're, Jordan, we're right next to Mark's 2000 levels, which is the old tech bubble for some of us that were around trading and might be able to remember that. Uh, those were crazy times. And, you know, looking at the uh, S&P 500, the valuations are quite similar. In some measures, when we look at the median price-to-sales ratio, they're even much higher than they were in 2000 or 2007. So that's one thing uh, investors should take note of. Uh, we, we were two standard deviations above the mean. And if you believe in mean reverting markets, you, know, you should definitely look out for that. Moving along, uh, I would also like to uh, discuss price-to-book ratio with you, which is a quite a common uh, indicator of valuation that's used. And it's a standard for just about all fund managers. Yes, Dio, on the price to book ratio, um, I mean, according to uh, your chart when we prepped for this podcast, it was 3.1, but now you say it's already up to 3.3. I mean, as, as far as uh, recently, I mean. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, looking back historically, we've never had valuations this high apart from the tech bubble. And the same is true of price to sales. And the next indicator we're also going to cover is the CAPE ratio too, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. So looking at the price to book uh, during the 60s and the 70s, overvalued markets, especially the peak in 73, price to book was around two times. Prior to the 1987 crash, it was 2.4 times. As we got into the tech bubble, the price to book really went high and we almost reached five times. Uh, in 2007, it got to three times. So now you're paying about 3.3 times premium for an assets that you're buying, these corporate assets. So I have to say that's quite a lot of premium. Whenever you pay a premium this high, forward returns over the long term, if you plan to buy and hold, they don't necessarily uh, show you a very good profit. Now, you know, maybe this time is different and maybe we will get to five times book and even higher, but uh, you're betting on a historical anomaly here. Uh, one thing that I also do want to mention about price to book is that the market uh, peak in 2000 saw 4.9 times price to book. And after two devastating bear markets, uh, the tech crash in 2000 until March 2003, as well as the global financial crisis from October 2007 until March 2009, we saw the price to book uh, revert back to 1.5 from 4.4 from almost 5. So uh, there was quite a lot of valuation, a mean reversion occurring there. And that was a pretty good moment to buy. However, none of us got the really clear buy signal that we were all looking for, which is similar to 1974 or the 1982 or even the 1949. These were major generational inflection points when we saw S&P trade below book value. We just didn't see that. It, it fooled a lot of investors, some of the most famous in the world who missed out on this bull market or at least parts of it and got in at other times when they noticed that the momentum was strong. But nevertheless, uh, price to book is now signaling that this is not the time to be chasing. Uh, shall we look at also uh, price to uh, CAPE ratios and also uh, which percentile we're in, Jordan? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us what percentile we are in right now and, and where that compares with some other historical markers. Well, we're at 31.3, according to Robert Schiller, on the CAPE ratio. And basically, that is the 97th percentile, 
which is similar to 1929 and higher than 2007 peak, but not yet uh, reaching those euphoric moments of the TMT bubble and the dot-com bubble in the late 90s and early 2000. Uh, basically, there's been only a handful of months in 1929 where we traded higher valuation than today and a several quarters during late 90s. So we are really in a, in a high percentile here for U.S. stocks, Jordan. And as I said before, similar to price to book, forward returns 10 to 12 years out using this indicator seem to be anywhere from low single digits to flat returns. So uh, investors who are tilting towards the passive strategy, buy and hold in the U.S., they might – uh, experience some turbulence and also some disappointments over the next decade. Tio, before we move on to other valuations, I just want to get your comments on something else quickly, just regarding the CAPE. And that is, there's some people who are wanting to remove the, glo the uh, global financial crisis and the negative earnings there from the CAPE, uh, you know, thinking that's some kind of outlier. But I mean, as you told me, I mean, even if you remove that from the CAPE, the CAPE is still fairly overvalued. That's correct. Uh, if you look at the earnings drop that we had from December 2007 for the next, I think, uh, one and a half years into the trough in middle of 2009, and if you were completely to remove that from the cyclically adjusted price to earnings mathematical equation, uh, you would have only a little bit of a reduction in CAPE. Uh, we would go down towards mid-20s or high-20s, but the overall median level uh, as well as the percentile level would only change by a, a point or so. So we, we would still be in a very high percentile looking at historicals um, going back to 1900s. But more interesting point is why would we bother removing the financial crisis? I mean, the, the, we might as well remove the Great Depression and just wipe it out from all the history books and also the 1974 oil embargo. Why, uh, you know, the good times come with the bad times. Markets tend to ebb and flow. We have secular bull markets and secular bear markets. It's up for discussion where we are in the current cycle and what stocks will do. And for every market bull, there's also a market bear. That's fair. But why go and exclude certain events? Uh, just to you know, create a confirmation bias. I really don't understand why people do this. If we have a you know a crash similar to 1987 in the, in a in 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 a year or two or three from now, we might as well not worry about it because we can just remove it, Jordan. Yeah. Well, uh, Tio, moving along, I want to get your thoughts on the uh, Crestmont PE ratio because I know this is something that you follow, but. This is not very widely known. I mean, normally people just use the Cape, but I understand the Crestmont is, is somewhat similar. Yeah, a little bit of a different uh, analogy when it comes to how inflation uh, impacts the earnings and how it's averaged throughout the history. But nonetheless, because there's a bullish confirmation bias to remove earnings from, let's say, the GFC, the collapse of the earnings in the GFC, uh, I just thought I'd do the other side of it and also create an equal argument for both sides and say that there are a handful of indicators out there, like the Crestmont PE, as well as the uh, Buffett's favorite indicator, which is U.S. equities relative to GDP, which are actually signaling that we are more expensive than the peak in 1929, and we're now kind of matching the peak of the dot-com bubble. We, we're at nosebleed levels. 
which is basically three standard deviations above the mean for Crestmont, and also very, very similar level for Wilshire 5,000 relative to GDP. And Jordan, don't forget that both of these indicators confirm what the price to sales ratio is saying as well, which is the first uh, one we just discussed at the beginning of the segment. So all of them are kind of confirming that we are very, very expensive and investors should, uh, you know, expect some turbulence in coming weeks and months ahead, maybe with a meaningful correction. But eventually, whenever the economy starts to slow down, and at this point in time, it's not, and whenever the cycle starts to uh, come from the late stage towards a recessionary stage, I think markets could have a serious bear market because valuations are so high. For the time being, we still look okay because the economy around the world is in a synchronized uh, and lockstep boom. And that's helping uh, underpin these uh, overpriced markets because earnings continue to grow. But this momentum won't last forever. And investors need to really prepare for what's coming around the corner. Next, T. Hill, we're going to talk about some recent news, headlines that have caught your eye. And uh, just talk to us about these headlines and, and maybe what they're signaling as far as the markets. Well, this section, I would say, is something that you do not see at market bottoms. Honestly, these kind of news headlines tend to occur near market peaks or prior to market peaks, even if the momentum runs for a little bit longer. Uh, if you want to play musical chairs and you want to push your luck uh, and be the winner and finally get the last share while everybody else misses out, maybe you're a very good trader and an investor and you'll probably try to do that. But these signals are letting you know that the music might stop playing soon. Basically, we have prominent and famous hedge fund managers who have been uh, doing really, really well over the last several years uh, throughout their career, over the last decade or so and have had very good returns in their career, they are losing reputation and they're underperforming the market. This usually happens to value investors, Jordan, and we see this near market tops because growth outperforms value and momentum outperforms value. Uh, so, you know, everyone's piling into the Teslas and the Netflixes and the Fangs and the Bats, which we'll cover later. But for those that don't know, Bats are Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent from China and the fangs, I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, but basically, value managers who try to maybe play the long short side of the things like David Einhorn, where they try to short the basket of bubblish stocks, which are overvalued, um, such as the fangs and the bats, they've been hurting him, while the value stocks that he's been buying have been un underperforming the market. So people like this tend to lose their reputation near market peaks. We saw something similar happen to Buffett from 1998 to 2000 when the tech stocks went through the roof while Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway declined by some 35-40% I believe during that time and I think people were laughing at Buffett and calling him an old geezer who's lost his way and is not a good investor anymore but you know um, things are always like that things are always euphoric exuberant and a bit crazy uh, near market peaks moving along we also have another headline that's very interesting because we are in, the, in, in a similar overvaluation uh, to tech in 1999 where we have Broadcom trying to 
uh, sweeten the deal on the Qualcomm takeover, which was rejected only a handful of weeks ago. Now, if this was to go through, this would be the highest uh, deal in the semiconductors and technology space uh, in history. So obviously, mergers and takeovers that are record-breaking uh, don't occur near market lows. Uh, finally, we'll move into a, a segment which we discussed recently while I was in Czech Republic, alternative assets. In particular, we're looking at here luxury property and collectibles uh, such as art and uh, others, uh, including diamonds. Uh, recently, we've had news that Leonardo da Vinci's painting got sold for almost half a, uh, I think, billion dollars, a record-breaking auction at, at uh, I think it was Christie's. And also, Vince Van Gogh's painting uh, received 80, almost 82 million um, uh, around the same time frame. There was another handful of paintings that also got sold, including two Andy Warhol's masterpieces, I think, 60 Last Suppers, and the famous painting, which I really like because I live in Asia quite a lot um, of my time throughout the year, and that's Mao from 1972. That one got sold for $32.5 million. So we have all these trophy collectible assets moving along. Uh, I think in Hong Kong recently we had a record-breaking sale for a pink diamond, and if that's not enough, Hong Kong is also breaking a record for trophy properties. These are not even luxury properties. These are really trophy properties. Uh, where uh, a certain buyer paid $77 million or $16,800 um, per square foot for a property at the peak. Now, I lived in Hong Kong, and the peak is wonderful. It's the best area to really invest if you can afford it in the overpriced and um, exuberant uh, real estate market of Hong Kong. But to pay uh, uh, $16,800 per square foot, for 4,600 square feet and to pay $77 million, that's absolutely ludicrous. Now, for my international readers, that's 181,000 US dollars per square meter, which is equivalent to, let's say, uh, a decent 50 square meters in Saigon, where I'm uh, currently doing this uh, interview from, uh, Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Uh, so $77 million, Jordan, for 424 square meters. Uh, you know, quite remarkable. So the the real signal, basically, uh, as far as news, it's basically excess. I mean, that's the common theme, right? Yeah, there's money sloshing around thanks to quantitative easing, uh, low monetary policies, and also the boom that we're having. Uh, booms create overconfidence by consumers, uh, by businesses, by CEOs, by managers. It's the same old cycle that we've always seen. And, you know, I'm not surprised that we have large art sales, Jordan, because basically we've had large art sales in, in the late 80s, uh, 89, 1990, prior to the crash of Japan, the Scandinavian banking crisis and the savings and loan crisis in the United States. That also marked a, a 20% bear market in the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. We've had a lot of sales in the late 90s and 2000. Uh, these art sales also marked a peak in the stock market. And then we had record-breaking sales of art in 2000 and late 2006 and early 2007, just prior to the subprime debacle and also the crash in commodities and the global financial crisis, which basically slaughtered equity markets all around the world. Uh, we had uh, quite a large record-breaking sales in art as well in 2011, particularly in May 2011, just prior to the uh, global index, including U.S. speaking 
where, uh, you know, J Japan, Eurozone and emerging markets and frontier markets went down meaningfully uh, over the handful of years into the Eurozone debt crisis and other problems that we had around the world while the U.S. continued, continued to march on its own. Uh, finally, late 2014, early 2015, a cluster of sales in the art world, predominantly because a lot of the investors who were borrowing at very low interest rates, whether it was in Europe and Japan and negatives or rock bottom in the United States, uh, started to get the signals from the Federal Reserve that interest rates will soon start to rise. And we had a cluster of sales, which basically was around the time also that the Chinese stock market crashed, emerging markets went into a crisis, uh, and also the commodities and oil bust occurred. Now we've had a record art sale. So uh, looking at historically, they don't always mark perfect peaks, but uh, a cluster of sales or even a record sale itself, like we've seen now, and we've seen both actually, tend to occur near market peaks, Jordan. So um, when we put it all together, whether it's the mergers and takeovers or the bidding up of collectibles and the fine art or luxury and trophy properties around the world from New York to London, in particular Hong Kong, these are all signals that there is a trouble ahead. Okay, Tio, now let's talk about sentiment. Can you share with us some of the, the sentiment indicators that you're looking at right now that concern you the most? Well, first of all, a major indicator is around the world to me is that it seems to me the bears have pretty much capitulated. I could be off by a few months here and there, but it's from everything that I'm looking at, there, it, there is not a lot of evidence to show the bears are active and that uh, there are short selling funds out there that are actually making money and that uh, people are going out there and setting up short selling funds or preparing for some black swan event. So uh, generally speaking, that's the theme and that's the feel that I'm getting. Uh, first and foremost, I look at the way that investors are using their cash and what they're doing with their cash as opposed to what they say. When I look at Merrill Lynch's client allocation from their recent uh, report, basically we have cash as a percentage of assets under management at all-time lows going back to how much they, uh, of data they have going back to the early 2000s. So the trough in 2007 was around 11% cash on their books, and uh, that was just before GFC. Uh, so the, the global financial crisis was just around the corner. Uh, that dropped around to around a similar level just before the Eurozone debt crisis kicked off and the equity markets around the world corrected meaningfully. Uh, markets outside of the United States had serious bear markets, whether it was emerging markets or Eurozone and Japan. Uh, following that, we had a Serious uh, trough in 2015 prior to the collapse of oil, uh, the sharp rise of the U.S. dollar and the correction in Chinese markets, which, which I guess roiled and uh, uh, scared the, the, the living uh, lights out of everyone around the world. But nonetheless, S&P 500 held up pretty well by only having about a 16% drawdown, I believe. Nevertheless, that was also a signal that came from very low cash levels and complacency from investors. Moving towards today, we have the lowest level that high net worth individuals who are speculating and investing with Merrill Lynch 
uh, hold on their books. So that's a, that's a cautious tale, Jordan. Moving along, retail investors that your moms and dads, they've also been holding very low cash levels as well. And as I always say, when cash is high, it's time to buy. Now, that sounds quite funny. You know, the phrase is, you know, rhymes, but it's actually quite true. If we look at 2002 in October and as well as March 2003, that was the time when cash allocation spiked above 35%, almost reaching 40%, according to the AAAII indicator that I posted here for those that are watching on YouTube. And that was a very good time to buy post the dot-com bubble crash. Uh, moving along, October, November 2008, as well as March 2009, very similar uh, dates to 2002 and 2003 when it comes to months. And once again, cash was high and it was time to buy. I believe Warren Buffett was using up all the cash that he had on his books around this time. And uh, here we are with a very powerful return ever since. Uh, cash levels have been very, very low. And if we slap on a moving average over the last 12 months, they've been at one of the lowest levels just prior to the dot-com bubble. So cash levels, Jordan, uh, not signaling not very good forward returns, I believe, uh, that we can expect around the corner. Okay, Tio, what about consumer confidence and business confidence? W what are these things showing right now, and, and what do they signal to you? Well, usually when we look at certain indicators, we're looking at what hedge funds are doing, what, what other advisors are doing, and so forth, and, and we, you know, what high net worth individuals are doing, and all of this is fine, but we should remember that one of the classic, let's call them dumb money indicators, is usually the public. Public is so uh, disconnected from what we talk about here on the podcast every day, every week, and every month, that they don't really care. But when they pay attention and notice, usually these are the extremes, uh, and these events tend to be infliction points in the market. So this was around late 2008, 2009, when the public was really fearful, similar to October 2011, when they were just as fearful as the global financial crisis. These were times to buy the stock market. And as you remember on my old uh, website, the short side of long, uh, I, I called the bottom, bottom of the October 4th, 2011, right on the day to buy U.S. stocks. And we, you know, me and my clients benefited quite a lot from that call. However, uh, market tops are not events like market bottoms that don't happen on a precise day uh, or, or a precise week where there is a signal to kind of jump in and buy, whether it's uh, 6th of March 2009 or 4th of October 2011 or, or maybe, uh, you know, early February 2016. Uh, whenever consumers get really optimistic, markets start to peak out and we get closer and closer to the top and tops tend to be rounding. So this is a cautionary tale. Basically, U.S. consumers are feeling the most optimistic since 2000s, uh, according to the Consumer Confidence Index. And if we throw in the spread between consumer confidence and presidential approval ratings, uh, we have basically a cluster of warning signals that happened in, I think it was uh, 68, uh, going into uh, 69, just prior to the bear market that occurred in 1970. And also, we have a cluster of readings that happened in March 2000, just prior to the dot-com crash. And now we have a cluster of readings again. So very low presidential approval ratings with very high consumer ratings uh, and very high consumer confidence, I should say, tends to spell uh, a very bad uh, and negative omen for the stock market, Jordan. 
but moving along, global consumer confidence is very high. We can see the highest uh, since 2007 in Eurozone and also quite elevated in Japan too. Nowhere near the signal that we should be looking to buy stocks. Finally, to answer your question, German stock market has been doing very well, reflecting the German business confidence. And the confidence there is pretty much as high as 2007 and 2011, if not higher. So as we go back in time and we look at 20 years of data, whenever German managers, CEOs, and main uh, company decision makers were this optimistic, we almost always had a, uh, a bear market in the DAX. So either a, a very, very serious correction or a full-on bear market. So basically, this tells us that the current optimism is just about discounted in the price. And let's not forget the markets are usually, not always, but usually a discount mechanism that prices in current conditions and tries to look towards the future. Okay, Tio, something else I want you to cover. What is the sentiment as far as financial advisors? I mean, as far as optimistic and pessimistic, I mean, is that telling you anything right now? Yeah, well, uh, I think two weeks ago, uh, looking at the Investor Intelligence Survey, which basically tracks gurus, experts, newsletter writers, and financial advisors, uh, and this data has been going on for several decades now, but basically we reached a spread that hit a record. Uh, we had something like 64% bulls and very low percent bears. And the spread was at 50 for the first time ever. Uh, so just about everybody, every Tom, Dick, and Harry out there is bullish. And what does that mean? Well, uh, looking at forward returns, whenever we had readings in the spread between the optimist and the pessimist this high, or, uh, or even at a record where we are now, um, you know, which is very, very rare, it occurs uh, very frequently because it's just a, such an extreme reading. But whenever, whenever it occurred, looking three months forward, six months forward, and even 12 months forward, the returns in the U.S. equity markets were rather muted. So what I'm expecting is a lot of volatility, ups and downs. But at the end, within the next 12 months, most likely uh, case scenarios that you'll go nowhere and you might even have some losses on, on your books. So you might get disappointed there. Okay, Tio, with that being said, just give us some final thoughts on sentiment and what this may mean uh, for the markets in, in the weeks and months to come. Well, high net worth individuals are speculating uh, and very complacent, uh, similar to the uh, prior to the GFC and the emerging markets crash in 2015. So I'm worried uh, because of that. I'm also worried because retail investors are very complacent. And the low volatility has just made them like that. So they have very low cash levels too. Um, finally, consumers in the United States, consumers in Eurozone, consumers in Japan and in other countries around the world, uh, very, very optimistic. Uh, and some of them are partying <laughs> like it's 1999. Uh, whenever, if we look at the long-term picture of the U.S. consumer confidence dating back to the last 50 years, consumers have rarely being this optimistic. The last two times they were this optimistic was in the mid 60s and the late 90s. Jordan, do you know what happened uh, whenever those two events occurred? We had a secular bear market from mid 60s to early 80s and from late 90s to uh, let's say 2012, 2013. So both of those were a lost decade of performance. 
So that makes me very, very worried. And finally, business confidence around the world. Exports are booming. Manufacturing is booming. We have a global synchronized uh, boom, as I've said. So that's all well and said and done. Having said that, usually by this time, as it becomes obvious to the public, it's obviously wrong, as I always used to say. So chances are a lot of this is already discounted in price, and we should uh, be at least cautious, if not bearish. But you know, I'm not shorting anything. I'm not looking to bet against anything as long as the economic cycle is still progressing uh, into late stages. But this is a time to be cautious and maybe look for a pullback, uh, covering all of the indicators that we've just covered here, Jordan. Okay, Tio. And finally, we are going to discuss the price action of the market and some observations on some things that you have. And starting off, uh, let's talk about how many days it's been since the last 5% drawdown in the S&P 500. Because, I mean, it, it seems like these types of charts, we're seeing them make the rounds on Twitter every day. Yeah, well, we're, we're coming towards a record-breaking run here. The momentum has been running so hot that whoever says to me, you should invest because of momentum, it clearly doesn't understand what they're talking about. You should have already invested because of momentum. And momentum has carried us this far despite high valuations. But now even momentum is so high that it's at nosebleed levels compared to the last 100 years of history. We've rarely had a run like this, which is 361 trading days without even a 5% correction, a 5% drawdown. So uh, this is incredible. You had to be trading around 1996, uh, which was more than two decades ago, just to experience one of these. And because the market volatility is so low, it feels like this kind of a trend is going on for a lifetime until the markets wake up one day and volatility jumps. And I have to say, at the time of this recording, Jordan, uh, we are noticing semiconductors coming down hard. We're noticing tech stocks like the fangs and the bats coming down and correcting. And this is where a lot of the investors hold a high exposure. These are the investor darlings or of, this, of the basically the, the current cycle. So uh, the fact that we haven't had a 1% intraday move, uh, I think in the Dow for the last uh, 50 days or so, uh, also signals that this is one of the most quietest markets in the history. Uh, moving along as well, I just want to let you know that the VIX recently had an intraday low of 8.5 and change. I mean, that's so low. And uh, realized volatility is at lowest level since 1960s. And in some ways, when measured, the average true range of the market itself is at, at a lowest level ever. So this is the most complacent market without a 5%, without even a 5% pullback, Jordan. Okay, now let's talk about another area that uh, has been pretty hot. I mean, you've, you've done fantastically this year, as we talked about before, in emerging markets. Now, the breadth in emerging markets is coming down a little bit. I mean, looking at the chart, the rise of emerging markets this year, I mean, it's almost been straight up, no real pullback, except for a few little pullbacks. Um, tell us about what you see in emerging markets right now. Yeah, well, we got very lucky, I would say. Uh, my mentor always used to say that you can never be smart in finance. So I always say that I was lucky. 
basically when you get something right, you're lucky. And when you get something wrong, you're an idiot. So as I said, we got very lucky this time around investing in emerging markets and they went up like a rocket and we've done very, very well there. Uh, but what we're seeing now is basically globally, we're having uh, fewer and fewer components of indices, whether it's S&P or Eurozone or emerging markets, uh, participate in the uptrend. And basically, we've had majority of these heavy swinging uh, high market cap stocks uh, push the index uh, higher. These are your fangs and your bats and so forth. Uh, and basically, we've had some sectors going parabolic like semiconductors really pushing the uh, market cap of the indices uh, higher, uh, while majority of these uh, lesser known companies are not really participating in the uptrend. And that's also happening in emerging markets. This is not a timing indicator, Jordan, when it comes to tops. It tends to be a pretty good one when it comes to bottoms. But when it comes to tops, this is just a signal and a warning uh, that we should start to turn more and more cautious because something is eventually going to happen. We don't know when. But uh, these uh, divergences can last for a little while and sometimes even longer than expected. But eventually they do play out and they play out in bearish ways. So that's something definitely to keep an eye on. As you know, in podcast uh, episode one, we've also covered the U.S. breath and not a lot has changed since then. So covering here in episode seven, emerging market breath makes sense. But they're all quite similar. Now, and Tio, speaking of past episodes, in episode six, you covered credit interest rate spreads. Um, we covered that a little while ago. Are there any new observations that you want to make here uh, for the listeners? And and maybe you could just uh, touch on your, your general view for the listeners that haven't uh, caught the last episode yet. Sure. Well, my expectation is that uh, relative to the last, let's say, uh, five, six, seven decades of history, depending on how much data you have and how much of research you've done in financial history, credit spreads are quite narrow relative to the mean or the average. So as the Fed runs off its balance sheet and as pretty much everyone in the investment world is bullish and holds low levels of cash, is bidding up trophy properties and trophy collectibles such as artwork, I'm a little bit cautious here. What I'm noticing is that credit spreads are not compressing that much anymore. Uh, you know, the, the Fed is not that stimulative and the ECB and the Bank of Japan might kind of turn to be less of buyers in 2018 and even uh, the QE generally and globally speaking uh, could not be a, uh, a tailwind, but instead a he headwind uh, for investors going forward. I've noticed that credit spreads are already kind of muddling sideways and they haven't started to widen. Uh, yet to indicate that the trend is reversing. But one of the things that I have noticed, though, is that the riskiest of junk bonds, the triple C credit spreads, uh, already uh, bottomed out. And for the last uh, six months or so throughout 2017, they have not been uh, compressing and they have not been narrowing like the ones that I'm showing here in the chart, if you look into our YouTube uh, video. Uh, so credit spreads are telling me it's time to be cautious not yet bearish, but uh, uh, you know, credit spreads really tend to spike and they tend to widen in times of financial turmoil, especially when it's connected to a drop in earnings and a recessionary economic activity. So nothing major to worry about yet, but I'm watching this basically on a weekly basis, Jordan. It could change from week to week very, very quickly. Keep an eye out on this one.
Now, Tio, you referenced the fangs and the bats earlier in this episode. Uh, t- <laughs> Sounds like we're talking about an animal zoo. <laughs> yeah. Now, t- tell us uh, what you see there and why this concerns you right now. Well, the fangs of the bats. Uh, you know, fang stocks are your Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, and I'm sure everybody out there knows them. And your bat stocks are basically your uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent from uh, China. These are all your technology stocks. Now, Merrill Lynch Fund Manager Survey has come out and stated for the last six months running that tech is the most overcrowded trade. Uh, prior to tech, it was the US dollar at the late 2016, early 2017, and uh, that ended up proving to be a great contrarian indicator where we saw the U.S. dollar had a very, very bad correction in 2017. Now, I'm wondering if the same will happen to the FANG and the bad stocks. I've noticed that over the last four or five days, Tencent, after moving some three standard deviations from its 50-day moving range, basically got extremely overboard as it was moving in a parabolic vertical run-up, and now it's started to correct. And over the last couple of days, we've seen uh, Facebook, uh, we've seen Amazon, we've seen Netflix, Google, even Tesla, and a lot of the semiconductors like NVIDIA and so forth start to correct very meaningfully. Uh, the, the market valuation and the market cap of these fangs and bats and your other animal zoo uh, post-child investment themes uh, basically has hit higher market cap than the German DAX. Uh, the market cap is higher than the Canadian and Australian economies, and it's even higher than how much PIMCO manages, which is, I think, one of the world's largest uh, mutual funds and pension funds. So, um, you know, we're getting up to 1.6 United States dollars, and that's trillion dollars, I should say, in value. So incredible. And, uh, you know, I- I- investor sentiment is something that we discussed in this episode, and this is, these are your poster boys of investing. Everybody's just been chasing this higher. If not these, then it's the Bitcoin. But basically, the technology uh, seems to be running uh, hot in the press, and everybody seems to be uh, after these stocks. I would be very, very, very cautious here. Okay, Tiho, you've covered so much today. Now, before we sign off, how about just a, uh, a minute or two summary or so? Sure. So we've co- covered valuations. Uh, price to sales ratio is nearing 2,000 valuation level. Price to book is not there yet, but it's you're looking at paying three to almost three and a half times premium for some of the assets uh, relative to what you would have been buying in some other generational lows or even a March 2009 low. Uh, CAPE ratios and price to GDP ratios, which what Warren Buffett loves to use, are also nearing uh, levels last seen in either 1929 or the level of 2000. So valuations uh, continue to signal that eventually stock markets will have a, a major uh, setback. Having said that, momentum car- carries them through and has continued to carry them through throughout the whole of 2017. As we've seen a Every single month, positive for the old country world index, the, the record-breaking run since the 1988 inception. Uh, in news and media, we've covered quite a lot of headlines, all of which sound 
to me like uh, exuberant, euphoric investors who are outbidding themselves to pay record prices for collectibles, for trophy properties, luxury properties, and also for other assets when it comes to mergers and takeovers. Uh, moving along, bears have seem to have capitulated. Short selling is not really uh, all that evident. Uh, there is not too many bears to be found in media. And whether we are looking at global consumers or global business CEOs and managers, uh, they are extremely uh, optimistic. And obviously, because of this kind of a fever pitch sentiment, cash levels are very low and everybody's just about invested. Uh, not, not that much cash on the sidelines as we've been hearing all these uh, years. Finally, we have credit spread starting to uh, widen a little bit and not really continued its narrowing trend, which we've seen since January 2016 when oil uh, bottomed and uh, the recovery in the stock markets around the world started. And the breadth continues to uh, deteriorate. Basically, the participation of companies uh, is falling, and that's happening locally in the United States and globally around the world. Finally, investors are obsessed with momentum, in particular growth stocks such as FANGs and the BATS, uh, but in recent days, uh, these sectors of the market, as well as the semiconductors, have started to get shaken up. And it remains to be seen whether this is a, a start of something more meaningful uh, or whether this is just a temporary blip in a ever-rising parabolic trend there as the market cap overlaps the size of Canadian economy, Jordan. So all in all, uh, a cautionary signal from me. Uh, you know, uh, it's probably smart to start raising some cash if you haven't already, and you should be anticipating a market correction sometime soon. Uh, you know, because there is no recessionary indicators around the corner, I assume that this would be more of a buying opportunity. But eventually, as the late cycle plays out, and that's where we are today, uh, we are going to be setting ourselves up for a major market peak, at which point a, a serious bear market and a setback uh, could occur. Okay, Tio. Well, great work today on all of this, and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, we will follow up on this and update our listeners in due time. Now, Tio, uh, let's talk about the next episode before we sign off here. Where will you be and what will you be covering in episode eight? Yeah, I finished all my travels in Europe, but uh, we'll, we'll be uh, posting in episode eight our German uh, travel as I went through Berlin uh, went to the Great Wall, uh, looked at German property prices and the booming economy. Uh, you know, as most of you already know, Germany is a export powerhouse and the central piece of the European Union, uh, basically the central player there. Uh, so uh, very, very important episode not to miss. Uh, there is quite a lot of movement in the property market in Berlin. And I have to say to you, I definitely enjoyed some German sausages and some beer. But bloody hell, it was freezing. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that you are now back uh, back in a much warmer climate. Yes, me too. Me too. Okay, T.O., well, that wraps up uh, Episode 7 of the Atlas Investor Podcast. Now, as we close, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning into the podcast. If you have a moment, please visit iTunes and leave a review of the podcast. We would really appreciate it. And if you have a question for Tio, please email it to us at podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. Again, that is podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. 
And feel free to also leave us any feedback or suggestions. We would also appreciate that. On behalf of T.O. Burkan, thanks again for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. We hope to have you back again for Episode 8. Thank you for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. To be notified of future podcast episodes, visit theatlasinvestor.com and sign up for our free newsletter. T. Hober Khan offers his clients a wide range of services, including portfolio construction and wealth management, one-on-one consultations, global real estate opportunities, international tax planning, citizenship and residency planning, and one-on-one mentoring. For a free consultation, visit theatlasinvestor.com and contact T. Hoper Khan.